A Story to Tell is a production of Bertha May Productions. It is sponsored by Portland Media Center. Hosted by Leslie McVean. Music, Ain't Looking Back by Richard Farrell. to tell, and I am your host, Leslie McVeigh. With each podcast, I bring to you the stories of people who have a story to tell. Today, my guest is award-winning author Catherine Gentile. Catherine has written works of fiction as well as nonfiction. Her books include The Quiet Roar of a Hummingbird, which was a finalist in the Eric Hoffer Novel Award for Excellence in Independent Publishing, Small Lies, a collection of short stories, and most recently, Sunday's Orphan, set in the time of the Jim Crow era. Her nonfiction writing has appeared in Writer's Market, North Dakota Quarterly, Down East, and Maine Magazine. And she currently edits and publishes a monthly e-zine entitled Together with Alzheimer's. Welcome, Catherine. It's nice to be here, Leslie. Thank well, you. It's nice to have you here. I have um, been a fan for a while. I've read Thank your you. other two books, which I loved, especially The Hummingbird, The oh. Quiet Roar of a Humming- Hummingbird. Um, I think that was a very personal story Close for you. To my heart. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Thank you. Well, today we're going to um, talk about Sunday's Orphan. And Sunday's Orphan is a disturbing book to read, Mm -hmm. um, not only because of the time period it takes place in in, and the horrendous injustices, cruelty, and fear that were a part of life for African Americans during that time, but also because it highlights the injustices and cruelty toward African Americans that have continued to this day. That's what struck me about this book. being written at this time and being released at this time. Um, Catherine, would you like to read a passage and then we'll talk about why you wrote this particular story? Thanks, Leslie. That's a great way to start. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter four, but you need to know know a few things before we get started. Um, I'm going to introduce you to people and I'm going to identify them uh, as either Negroes or whites because at this time, Um, In 1930, that's how characters thought of themselves. And it's very important to understand that relative to the story. So we're putting it in context. Um, The protagonist's name is Promise. And she lives on a plantation, a rundown plantation, during the Jim Crow era. And in this reading, uh, chapter four, you're going to meet Fletch Hart, who is a brilliant young Negro man who's a dear friend of Promise, who is white. You'll also meet his mother, 
who is a revered Negro midwife known as Mother Heart by the townsfolk and Ma'am, M-A-M, by those who know her well. Mother Heart is a healer who delivers babies, black and white, to the women of Martinsville, black and white. So in this first selection that I'll read, Mother Heart has just learned that her adopted son, a young man named Trivet, has been arrested and is in jail. She and Fletch are on their way to find Trivet and to see to his release. Let me get started. Chapter 4. The faded yet insistent letters on the sign for the Martinsville Monitor reflected the town's atmosphere as Fletch drove through the business district. Next door, in the storefront window of Lat's Dry Goods, propped against an off-center pyramid of clabber girl baking powder, a new misspelled poster beckoned special sale, wits only, W-H-I-T-S. Across the street, a notice at Citizen Savings Bank overshadowed the dubious enticement in Mr. Latt's window. Gathered by the bank's somber locked doors, a crowd read the posting of reduced banking hours, 9 to 11, Mondays only. They're closing the lid on our coffins, one man muttered. Others nodded, nodded and wandered off, their once confident footsteps drained of swagger. Had Fletch been allowed to stroll this section of Martinsville, his footsteps would have faltered too, for reasons of a different sort. Now, as the sheriff's car came into view, Fletch hunched in an attempt to appear smaller, but there was no hiding the fact that he was higher up in his wagon than the sheriff in his car would ever be. To make matters worse, the small natural upturn at the corners of his mouth made him look as though he thought the sheriff funny. Since Taylor's death, Taylor would be Promise's adopted uncle. Since Taylor's death, not much about white folks was amusing, and he didn't want the sheriff assuming offense when none was intended. He wanted to urge his mule to move quickly from the gas station, but held her at a pace befitting a black man who meant no harm and had no reason to run. One gentle shake of the reins and his wagon soon passed the Redemption Baptist Church where pale ladies in clean dresses and country hats and occasional bundle in tow hurried across the street. Town's in a jitter today, Fletch said. You can feel it in the air. His mother sat still as death on the seat behind him, her evenly pinned gray braids shifting with the sway of the wagon. Everyone's heard about the arrest, she whispered. Miss Maddie's seamstress shop, the first Negro business on the other side of the church, came into view. Ma'am gripped the bench, leaned forward, and nodded discreetly in the direction of the incident. There. Her eyes locked on the lacy handkerchief still lying on the uneven section of walkway where the woman had tripped. Her voice became indignant. We both wanted to help, for goodness sakes. It was only natural. After all, a woman fell right in front of our eyes. It shouldn't have mattered that she was white, but it does. It always does. I held back, but Trivet, she swiped at the air with her fist. We were walking several feet behind the woman, watching her struggle with her purchases. No sooner did she manage to get one parcel tucked under her elbow than the other slipped away. Next thing we knew, she was shifting her packages from arm to arm across her swollen belly. 
That brown wrapping paper kept on crinkling and crying as though the babe inside of her was kicking, warning her to slow down. And just as I got to thinking she was about to unleash a storm, she jammed the toe of her shoe smack crack against those uneven boards. Oh, dear. Ma'am clasped her cheeks as though Trivet and the woman were right there on the ground in front of Fletch's wagon. All poor Trivet had to hear was my baby, what with his Lisbeth being in the same way, and the next thing I knew, there he was, one gentle brown hand steadying the woman and the other helping her up. She was leaning on him and thanking him, telling him she didn't know what she would have done without him. That's when another white woman came along and started beating him off as though, he's, as though he'd been doing the pregnant woman an injustice. By now, ma'am's hands, folded one atop the other, shook. Fletch rested his hand on hers, brought them to stillness. She trembled with a silent sob, the same hideous sound she'd made the night the men had dragged his father away, then caught herself and sat upright. They'd never have arrested Trivet if Taylor were alive. Folks like us don't belong in Martinsville anymore. Ma'am studied his face. What are you saying, son? You're not leaving now, are you? Too many bad things are happening. You in some trouble I should know about? With Trivet in jail, we're all in trouble. More than you know. Wow. <laughs> you paint such a vivid picture of life in that community at that time. Um, I got shivers, you know, um, especially, you know, when, when she fell and he came to, he didn't even think, he just did it. He, it was the goodness in him he was just that responded yeah. um, without any thought to what that might mean for him in a public place to be approaching a, a white woman. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, beautifully done. Thank you. Um, it just really, the, the handkerchief, everything, the, the sign on the window, the, I had a feel for, you know, the people and, and, and the woman coming in anger at, at, at him. Um, tell me why, um, why you chose to tell a story set in rural Georgia at this particular time, um, during the Jim Crow days. Well, uh, let's start with why I chose Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people come up to Maine and they vacation here and they write stories about it. They're taken with it. And I had the same experience having spent some time vacationing in Georgia. <laughs> so I was taken with Georgia. And even when I went back to subsequent visits and visited friends living down south, I could still be taken with it again and again and again. Maybe it's just being someplace different, but it fascinated me. And the other thing that has fascinated me throughout my entire life is our um, preoccupation with race. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and as a little girl, um, I would go into the public swimming pool and swim with kids who were black, and um, there was no big deal about it. I mean, we looked at each other like little kids do, and they'd say, what's the matter with your skin? It's so white. And, I, and I'd say, I don't know. And I would go home to my dad, who was an artist, and I'd say, why is their skin so dark? And he would tell me about pigments 
and that some people have more of one color. And I'd seen him mixing colors palettes for his paintings. So I understood that. It made complete sense. And it wasn't a matter of a person who had that pigmentation having a specific character as a human being. They were human beings. Mm -hmm. So I, I never, I, I don't to this day fully understand it. I, I think part of my motivation in writing this book was to maybe try to gain an understanding. And for me, looking back at history always helps me put things in context. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a lot of things contributed to my fascination. And, and the Jim Crow era was just uh, such a frightening time. Um, I just needed for myself to, uh, to go there mm -hmm. and to experience it. Um, right. And I think um, your dad's answer to your question was, was great. You know, yeah. um, my, my uh, little granddaughter is African-American. And uh, her dad is, is, and her mother is biracial, mm -hmm. my daughter. And um, Penelope said to her mother, I don't know what they were talking about, but she says, you're white, Mom. You know you're white. <laughs> and she goes, no, I'm not. <laughs> she said, yes, you are. She said, no, I'm not. And she said, well, Daddy's really dark, dark, mm -hmm. and I'm really brown, and you're white. <laughs> Too bad you didn't get what I mean, we have. And yeah, and she thinks I'm a peach. <laughs> but I love that. It's just she's looking she's at the at the pigment. Mm -hmm. She's not looking at mm -hmm. race. She's looking at we're all. And you look at white people. We're all different colors oh, and we are. shades. We are. But we can't. We can't do that. You know, we don't do that. Um, we we make it about race. We've created something. We and, have. And now, and now we're living with it. Yeah. So I guess, when did you start writing this book? And and you you tell me, you know, what, what, what your interest was and why that time frame and why Georgia. But um, how did you start? What did you do? You know, um, it started as a short story, a 10,000 word short story. So they they actually, call it, they, it wasn't long enough to be a novella, and it wasn't short enough to be a true short story. So it was called a long story. <laughs> Not very creative with their terms, but that's what it was called. And um, there was only one journal that I knew of that was interested in long stories, and it was called The Long Story. It was out of Lawrence, Massachusetts. So I, I wrote the story it was my beginning interest in the entire um, racial issue and the entire issue of people living down south and living with this thing that um, they were born into. And uh, I put together a short story. It was quite a bit different um, from Sunday's Orphan, and it was called Seduction. Mm. And um, I was shocked that this uh, young editor picked it up and gave me a play at it. Um, so that was lovely. I mean, for a new author, that was a long time ago. That was 20 years ago. Oh. Um, for a new author, that was very exciting. And I was taking writing classes at the time. And um, shortly thereafter, I got a phone call at home from a New York agent. Um, I knew nothing about the writing world. A New York agent who asked me if there was a novel that went with the story. And um, I said, no, but there will be. 
<laughs> it's on its way. <laughs> I'm going to work on it right now. I'm, and of course, he knew, you know, it would be years before he heard from me again. But uh, that's what got me thinking about, I mean, I kind of thought, oh, that's really silliness. And it just stuck with me. And after a while, uh, I thought, I need to try this. So I don't think I expected to get into ro- novel writing at that point in my writing career, mm-hmm. but I just thought a door opened and I needed to go through it. Ah. Well, each chapter in the book begins with a little quote from mm-hmm. the Reverend Taylor Crawford. Correct. Um, I enjoyed that. I mean, it took me a while to go, oh, it's Taylor again and, and again, and um, it tells a lot about the, the man, mm-hmm. um, but why did you choose to, to start that way with the with the chapters? Well, um, I have to go back a little bit, as with most things. The book was very organic, so as I found a need, um, I addressed it. It wasn't like I mapped it out and I had a, an idea of what was going to happen. I really didn't. And um, when I was working on the character of Promise, who is the protagonist, the young woman who is who becomes Sunday's orphan, I thought she was probably a little less capable than she is in the novel. So I thought her language would be very simple. She was living on a farm. It was a remote rural area. But I couldn't stand the language. It was boring. And if an author's bored by it, you can absolutely you know, know that your reader's going to be bored by it. So I started writing in very lofty language. And then my writing group um, told me, well, you can't do that because she's not going to talk like that. But what I realized was I enjoyed writing that way, and I realized that her uncle, Taylor Crawford, her adoptive uncle, was a very well-educated man. He was from Harvard University, and um, that he was well-read, and that he was teaching all the people on the plantation to read and to write. So he was dedicated to people having equal access to information. So that gave her a tutor who was very intelligent. So she was exposed to literature and reading and writing. So she could speak more eloquently. But as I wrote out Taylor's portions of, um, that were then part part of the novel itself, uh, I realized he had died. Again, this is all very organic. Um, So I realized he wasn't around anymore. So I had to do something else with him. And I didn't want to lose the language, and I didn't want to lose his character. So I thought epigraphs, just to kind of frame. And, uh, you know, I found the same thing you did, Leslie. I um, I found that after a while, they followed one another, and it <laughs> kind of worked. So It does, and, and I love that he's 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 gone at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not there. He has died. Right. Yet we get to know him mm-hmm. through those epigraphs every uh, every chapter, as well as through the eyes of the people who knew him, Mm -hmm. who saw him in different ways. Exactly. But we heard from his own voice, really. Right. Right. It was a chance for him to speak, even though he was in the grave. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that was so clever. Thank you. So clever. It was fun. It was fun. (laughs) Yeah. I I enjoyed that very much. Um, So he was an interesting man and wanted to create this safe space on his plantation for for the people who worked there, um, the African Americans mm-hmm. who worked there, so that they wouldn't feel fear or that they were going to be attacked. Um, 
and and that along with his teaching, teaching them to read and write and and speak. You know, yes. um, I was. Why did was that something he did before Promise came into his life? He had been doing that, or because she came into his life, did he feel he wanted to create a world that she um, would be proud to be part of? He was uh, an idealist, Mm -hmm. but not quite along those veins. Um, He was actually asked to leave Harvard because he had some very, um, very liberal views of races and how they should relate to one another. And what he thought is that all should be one. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make any difference what pigmentation you had in your skin. He just didn't see that as as having an impact. He was an idealist um, and very uh, utopian. So he he didn't let being thrown out of Harvard um, get him down. He he was connected to the southern areas um, and he moved down south and he thought, you know what, I'm just gonna start a different world. Um, And it's gonna be a good world and um, maybe part of his thing was that he was going to show people up at Harvard that he could do it. Um, and he did. He continued to have connections with people in Boston so that there were people who were writing about him and talking about him. So there was um, a very strong ego there. And that strong ego allowed people to live safely, as you have said, but it also got him in trouble, <laughs> as egos will do. Yeah, mm. and he and the and those people from the north did come and visit mm-hmm. and and um, see mm-hmm. with their own eyes what he yes. was doing there, um, and promise um, embraced that part of him. Oh yes, um, very strongly. Mm-hmm. She 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 kind of grew up not seeing. A difference. Um, knowing, though, I mean, she wasn't. She was a smart woman. She knew there was a difference. That people were treated mm-hmm. um, not equally. Right. Um, but she really embraced his belief. She did, and he embraced the fact that she was a person, and that she did not need to be confined to what the common notion of womanhood was at that time. So he taught her to use a rifle, he taught her to farm, he taught her to tame wild horses, to heal animals. Um, she could do everything any man could do on the, on the plantation. Um, and she can read and write and, and uh, think for herself. And he constantly goaded her to get information, um, conduct your own thought process, gather information, make observations, and then decide for yourself what's going on. Um, And she did that. Mm -hmm. And I think um, he was wise because she she was the one who was left to carry on. Yes. And she she fought hard to to be that person and, and carry on. Um, I don't want to give things away. I know, it's hard to talk uh, about. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, we see at the beginning, she is running the mm-hmm. place. Yes, he's died and she now owns it. Right, mm-hmm. um, but it is still the South, and and the majority of the people in that area didn't feel the same way right. 
that Reverend Crawford did and promised. Exactly. So we see what happens Mm -hmm. going forward from there. Um, I know you were close to all your characters because you, you... you found them. They came to you. They came through you. Um, but did you have a one character in particular that you were very close to or felt really um, fond of? Um, AC was a favorite of mine. A-C-E-Y is his name. Mm-hmm. And um, he came about, he kind of rescued me because writing about things that are miserable, um, people being treated unfairly and awful things happening to them was hard and I was doing a lot of research about it and um, it wasn't it wasn't an easy thing to sit with day in day out so I needed a little bit of levity and uh, I thought this book needs levity we need to have get somebody in here is going to raise things up a little bit and AC was kind of a goofy guy and uh, I just became very fond of him I mean, I was very sorry for him because he wound up in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, um, there was a goodness to him. A sweetness, I think. a sweet little guy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Exactly. Uh, That's what I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I enjoyed him. Yeah. (laughs) He saved me. Yeah. And uh, Mother Heart um, Mm -hmm. was a heart. I mean, the name was perfect. You know, she was, Mm -hmm. uh, she gave help bring life into the community, as you said, black and white. That's right. She was the one they went to. Mm-hmm. Um, she delivered babies and she healed yeah, people yeah. who were sick. So And she kept people's secrets. She kept their secrets. She kept their secrets. She knew more about that community than anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I th- found her very interesting. I enjoyed her immensely. Yeah. 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 And, um, I mean, the book just goes on and on and and you see all the all that comes of keeping secrets and once those secrets start to be revealed and people learn right how the whole town can be affected exactly wow Mm. and and was that your plan from the beginning or did that just come along as you were writing again it came along it was very i keep on using the word organic but it grew from the bottom up (laughs) and as circumstances started to evolve you know when you're writing it's not just sitting at a desk and um having the pen in your hand or at the computer however you write but the mind is always working and even when i would go to sleep at night if there was a problem, I knew my mind would be working on it while I was sleeping. So 5 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up and i think, aha, you didn't think of it that way. But the mind relaxes, and it allows you to look at things differently than you do during the day. And um, so I have to say that my sleeping mind <laughs> helped me an awful <laughs> lot. And, yes, it the more uh, information I looked at differently, I could see different patterns and I can see different problems. And that's where um, a lot of these different situations yeah. came from. Well, and as you, I mean, you really were traveling the path with them. Yes. I mean, you, they, you, you were living each day with them and not knowing really, you know, what's, what is going to happen? Mm-hmm. What, where is this going to take me? Mm-hmm. And I love that, that journey that you were on with them. They weren't alone. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. 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 So when do you write? 
and where? Well, I have a I have a very lovely office. Um, we put an addition on the house, and so I got the room uh, upstairs, and you know the corner office kind of thing with all the windows. Well, I finally got my corner office, <laughs> and uh, it's just it's a big room, and my computer is at my um, it's a standing computer situation, um, and the desk that I use is my dad's drafting desk. So that kind of break, ties that in. Um, and it's, uh, you know, an old-fashioned piece of furniture with the wrought iron. Uh, I don't know if you call it a semi-wheel, but you can <laughs> raise it and lower it and move the top. So it worked well for um, my computer. And um, I look out the window a lot. And I, I guess I write um, every day. And I would usually write in the morning because that's when I was freshest and I had all these thoughts from the night before, from when I was dreaming or sleeping, whatever I was doing. And um, But there were some days where I just couldn't stand being inside and I'd go outside my garden. And um, at first I felt kind of guilty because I was leaving the characters behind and, you know, I really ought to be working, etc. But I found that releasing whatever tension was in my body and being out in the fresh air helped a whole lot. <laughs> and I could go in and have, again, new ideas, different perspectives. And, you know, my hands were in the dirt and I was planting flowers and planting vegetables and taking the weeds out. But again, my mind was thinking about what's going on in the story. Yeah. And it's just a, a relaxing type of creative activity. Mm -hmm. So... I don't feel guilty anymore about leaving the desk. You shouldn't. I mean, I think I think you're right. It, it's like it's like any relationship. Yes. You need a little break now and then. Yes. Maybe it's going out into the garden. Maybe it's going on a trip around the world. Exactly. But you do. You need that to to get a different perspective and to refresh. Exactly. What your what your relationship is, and you had a lot of. People you were in relationship with in this <laughs> a book. Lot of people a yes. lot of people. Yeah. Yes, yes, quite true. So what are you working on now? Well, I have uh, another book that's a historical fiction. Um, it's set in, I believe, I haven't really decided 100% yet, 14th century, and it's overseas. Um, and I haven't quite decided which country it is yet, um, Belgium. Uh, Germany. I don't quite know. It depends on a number of things. But I started doing research on it, and um, I've always been fascinated with Middle Ages. So uh, I will venture into that. But you know, Leslie, um, you had mentioned before when we were talking about just needing to get some space. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And like, how long between books? You know, I, I was thinking, you know, that you're so involved with that and you put it down and it's it's almost like losing an animal or moving as i said where Absolutely. it takes a while to to get used to that loss almost yes. and yes. move on so I, I wondered about that yeah you're you are very perceptive about that um finishing the book and and having it published and and now working through all the um post-publication excitement is lovely but I do. I feel like, boy, she's going away from me. You know, now she's not mine anymore. She's yours and everybody else's. Everyone, yeah. So I need to get somebody else in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right. I, I'm not really ready to sit down and do it mm -hmm. yet. Um, and I'm hoping that I haven't lost my discipline. But um, 
you know, that always frightens me. Like, oh, you're going to lose your mojo kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure I'll come back. I think as you just taking a much needed break. Yeah. But and it, my mind's going. My yeah. Mind's going. And yeah. once you really mm -hmm. get into it, mm -hmm. it's going to just grab you and take you on a wild ride well, <laughs> through the well. Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people buy your book? Um, they are welcome to buy it on Amazon. Uh, Barnes & Noble is carrying it. Um, I have it on my website, www.catherinegentile.com. Um, you can buy uh, Sunday's Orphan, and I'll be glad to sign it for you and send it to you. Um, and the other thing is that I'm taking uh, all three of my books and offering them in a holiday package. So that offers, it's a pretty good price. And if you're, Wonderful. If you're one of those people like me who gives books for presents, mm -hmm. it's a good deal. Uh, so that's also through my website. But um, Terrific. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for asking. And I've read all three. Thank you. And I think they're all wonderful. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and uh, thank you for being here and sharing with our audience. It's um, been delightful. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Oh, you look at